Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast, which is focused on an article entitled, Exercise, Manual Therapy, and Booster Sessions in Knee Osteoarthritis, Cost-Effectiveness Analysis from a Multicenter Randomized Controlled Trial. I'm delighted to welcome today two of the authors of this work being published in the Physical Therapy Journal, Dr. Allie Bove and Dr. Kelly Fitzgerald, both of whom are in the Department of Physical Therapy in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. Allie is assistant professor as well as a doctoral student in the department, and Kelly is a professor in the department as well as an associate dean in the school. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you for having us. Well, I really enjoyed your article, and I want to start by thanking you for publishing it in PTJ. I thought what I would do is give listeners a quick overview, and then we'll go into a series of questions so that we can talk a bit about your work. Sound okay? Sounds good. Sounds great. The study compared the cost-effectiveness of four different combinations of exercise, manual therapy, as well as booster sessions for individuals with knee OA. And the cost-effectiveness analysis was done alongside a multi-center randomized controlled trial that the investigators conducted. And they did the study with 300 individuals from four different locations, Pittsburgh, Salt Lake City, and San Antonio. This is a very um, ambitious study, and I want to congratulate both the, the team uh, on a really nice piece of work. The physical therapy strategies that they studied were exercise only, exercise plus booster sessions, exercise plus manual therapy, and then exercise plus manual therapy as well as booster sessions. Now, in this cost-effectiveness component of their study, the booster strategies, both exercise alone and exercise plus manual therapy, dominated the non-booster strategies with both lower health care cost as well as greater overall effectiveness. Let me start, if I can, and uh, talk about your introduction where you've reviewed some of the recent evidence on the clinical benefits of including booster sessions in the uh, the treatment and management of DOA. And you make the note that the evidence, the current evidence, is, is conflicting with some studies noting positive clinical benefits of having booster sessions and others suggesting no additional benefit. Do you have any thoughts about why you think the current evidence is conflicted? So I think uh, in those studies, the methods were somewhat different and could probably explain the mixed results. The content of the booster sessions may not have been exactly the same. One of the studies, it seemed that the booster application was sort of an afterthought. They had done a randomized trial, and then the idea of Using boosters to sustain effects was relatively new at the time. People were talking about it, but there had been no evidence. So I think this group decided to tack that onto their methods uh, after the fact. 
and they had uh, two booster sessions over a period of 24 weeks, and they found no difference. And they compared that to a home, a group that had a home program. And the other thing that they did in that study is they monitored adherence to the home programs. And some might consider that in and of itself uh, a bit of a booster. So you had their booster group against a group that was having the adherence to their program monitored. In the other study where they found a difference, the boosters were spread out. They had four boosters, so it's twice as many spread out over a year. And there was no monitoring of adherence of the home programs, though both groups were doing home programs. So those differences in methods might explain some of the the difference in their results. The other thing is the group that found a difference, the initial effect size after the initial set of therapy sessions was lower than the paper that did not find an effect of boosters. And, you know, that might speak to, well, maybe there was more room for improvement in that particular study. So these are all things that are methodological differences that probably could explain the difference in their results. Yeah, that's very helpful, Kelly. Thanks. You know, it's interesting when I look at the results of your parent study in light of what you've just described, the, the clinical effects of the four different strategies were similarly positive. So it clearly supports the effectiveness of exercise in this patient population. But again, it provides conflicting information regarding whether manual therapy and or adding booster sessions enhances the magnitude and or persistence of the overall benefits from the exercise. In light of what you've just described in the existing literature, were you surprised by your parent study findings? I guess I would say yes and no. The manual therapy, we did show short-term effects on the WOMAC with the primary outcome of the study. And other people have also shown that in previous literature. And then over over time, the differences between having manual therapy or not seems to diminish. It doesn't seem to make a difference over the long term. And I think others have reported that as well. So that wasn't a huge surprise. I was surprised that we didn't see an effect on the WOMAC with the booster question. However, I want to point something out. The WOMAC was our primary outcome, but we did show effects of the booster at one year for pain and also for proportion of people who met the responder criteria that was established by ORSI. And I just want to point that out because, you know, the clinical paper to me does start to speak towards a benefit of the boosters based on those secondary outcomes. And if you look at the ORC responder criteria, I think it actually is a bit more comprehensive of whether someone's actually getting better because it takes into account their changes in pain and function in a global rating. And I wish I had made that the primary outcome, but at the time, that algorithm for responders was based mainly on drug studies, and there hadn't been a whole lot of information on how that would respond with rehabilitation, and I think that's why we ended up just staying with the WOMAC itself as the primary outcome. So we did have some signals in that clinical paper that the boosters uh, may have a beneficial effect. Well, and it certainly sets the stage for your cost-effectiveness analysis, which obviously builds on the points that, that you've just made. It also kind of highlights one of the downsides of 
doing prospective registration of clinical trials, you were committed because of your registration, I assume, with your primary yeah, that's, health. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I understand that's a double-edged sword that people don't often talk about. Yeah. I think it also speaks to the fact that when anyone looks at these clinical studies, there's a primary outcome measure, but there are secondary outcome measures. And if they're important to you as a clinician, you know, you shouldn't ignore those findings. Yeah, point well taken. Well, let's get into the cost-effectiveness work itself. Individuals received booster sessions, and there were eight visits over nine weeks, followed by four additional booster sessions spaced across a year if I have that right, and the booster sessions were face-to-face appointments with the treating physical therapist. Do I have that right? That's correct. Uh, how important do you think is the face-to-face component of your booster sessions, and, and did you consider or have you considered alternative approaches in future um, work? So I think the face-to-face piece is important because uh, in those booster sessions, we're not just redoing the treatments. We're also analyzing how a person's doing with their home program. Is there a need for them to be progressed? Are they having difficulties where maybe the, you know, things need to be adjusted in terms of their, their program? And sometimes you gain more information when you actually get the patient into the clinic. So that was why we chose to do face-to-face on our first approach. However, since that paper came, the original paper came out, the clinical trial, a number of people have asked us, well, what about other methods? I don't think we can discount that, you know, with tele-rehab methods becoming more popular, you might be able to get the same things done without actually having the person come in. So I think this is, should be open for investigation to see, you know, is it absolutely necessary to have a face-to-face booster or are there other ways in which a booster can be delivered? And with the availability of tele-rehab, it's, it's kind of a natural next question. Okay, well, let me go on to the next item that struck me in reading your work. You use the osteoarthritis cost and consequences questionnaire, and you use that to have participants report 12-month healthcare utilization at baseline, looking back for the previous 12 months, as well as at one and two years post. Uh, were you concerned about recall bias, and was this a cost decision, or did, were you comfortable that you were going to get sufficiently valid information looking over 12 months? So the osteoarthritis cost and consequences questionnaire was initially validated over a three-month look-back period, so 12 months definitely was longer than when it had been previously validated. But there are similar questionnaires that have been used in other populations, having participants self-report health care utilization over a one-year period that has showed appropriate validity. So I think it was less of a concern. Because of the types of questions that were being asked of the participants, things like, did you receive injections over the previous year or x-rays or how many times did you see a surgeon, those are generally things that people don't tend to forget or get confused because usually those don't happen too many times in a year. When asking questions about medication, we didn't ask over the entire year. We simply asked participants to report their current medication use and then noted any changes that had occurred compared to the previous year. Sure, that seems very reasonable to me. In your cost-effectiveness analyses, you note two different approaches. You talk about a trial-based cost-effectiveness model 
and a base case cost-effectiveness approach, which is the one that you selected. I'm not an expert in this area, and I think it might be helpful to listeners if you talked a little bit about the differences between these two approaches and why you made the choice that you did. Sure. So the perhaps easier thing to have done would be to simply compare the costs and the outcomes that were actually observed in the trial at one year and two year follow-up and to calculate our incremental cost effectiveness ratio, which is the difference in costs divided by the difference in effectiveness, and make a conclusion about cost effectiveness in that manner. However, by choosing to use a Markov model, we were able to look at a variety of scenarios and really have more robust sensitivity analyses where we could say, well, what would have happened if we observed more surgeries in this group? Or what if this group had better quality of life at two years? So it made it easier for us to sort of trust our results and make conclusions about which variables may have been playing more into the results than others. Using a model also allowed us to do the exploratory analysis where we modeled it out to a five-year horizon instead of just the two years that participants were actually in the study. So we were able to sort of project what would happen in the future with these participants, even though we weren't still following them. That makes good sense when you think about the longer-term projections. Thank you. Let me talk a little bit about this incremental cost-effectiveness ratio that you used and, and ask you some, some questions about your uh, results. You note that there's no agreed-upon criterion in, in the United States regarding the ratio that you should use that denotes whether a strategy should be considered cost-effective. And you chose to use a criterion of, if I have it correctly, $100,000 divided by quality-adjusted life years gained. Can you talk a bit about, first of all, what quality-adjusted life years means for those who aren't familiar, and talk about why you made that choice of a criterion to help us understand what it really means? Sure. So a quality-adjusted life year or a quality, one quality is equivalent to one year lived with full quality of life. So if, if you think about quality of life on a scale of 0 to 100, where 100 is perfect, one quality is one year at perfect health. Or it could also be several years at less than perfect health. And so typically, cost-effectiveness analyses look at how much it costs for each quality that is gained. So in the United States, because we don't have nationalized health care, there isn't really an agreed-upon criterion. Most authors have gone in the neighborhood of $50,000 to $100,000 per quality gained. If you look at some other countries that do have nationalized health care where the government has to make policy decisions about what treatments to cover, they will often set a criterion that equates to in the neighborhood of fifty dollars to $100,000 per quality gained. And so we chose to use a criterion of $100,000 per quality in this study, but the results also would have shown cost-effectiveness at lower criterions, including at $50,000. So regardless of where in that range we would have chosen to go, our results would have been basically the same. That's very helpful. Thank you. 
Now, let's go on and talk about the actual result to make sure you can help us interpret it. If I read your paper correctly, you found that Exercise Plus Booster cost just over $1,000 more and gained uh, 0.082 more quals than Exercise Plus Manual Therapy Plus the Booster for an overall incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of 12900 per quality-adjusted life year gained. Is that correct? That is correct. So help us understand how clinically or policy significant that difference is. Sure. So I think the more salient point here is that the strategies that didn't contain boosters were more expensive and were less effective than strategies that included boosters. So basically, booster sessions were cheaper and produced better outcomes. And so... When that happens, we refer to the lesser strategy as being dominated because policymakers would never choose to do something that's more expensive and has poorer outcomes. And so I think this is really clinically and policy significant because, at least in the United States, current payer policies don't really allow for us to use booster strategies with most of our patients because of things like the amount of time that you have to complete a plan of care before having to do a discharge or a reassessment um, and things like that. And so our results would indicate that not only would our patients have better outcomes if we were adopting booster strategies, but that it also would save money in the long run. And so I think this is very clinically and policy significant because it suggests that if these results are, are shown to be true in other studies or other, other samples of people, that both clinically and from a policy standpoint, we should think about changing our approach to how we deliver physical therapy to people with NEOA. And then if I read correctly, when you project your analysis out to five years beyond the two years, the results are, are robust and consistent. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, so that's, that's quite uh, compelling. Which leads me to the, to the bottom line question. Have you shared your findings with any payers, and have they jumped in to change their reimbursement practices based on, on the results of your work? So we have had discussions with our, our local health plan, and we're currently working to implement this process in our uh, rehabilitation partner with the health plan, the Centers for Rehab Services. We haven't fully implemented it. We're sort of in, in the process, but the plan is to get this implemented in that system and then look to see if we can reproduce our results within a, you know the larger system. And the, the health plan is interested in helping us with that type of investigation. So I'm, I'm hopeful that things will work out the way our study did, and in a few years maybe this is something that we can convince people should be done on a broader scale. That would make for a very nice follow-up to this work as well. Okay. Well, unless there's anything else either of you wants to add, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about your study with me. I really enjoyed reading it and talking with you about it. I think it's a very important uh, contribution, and I appreciate your publishing it in Physical Therapy. 
Well, thank you. That that means a lot to us. And uh, thanks for uh, for having us.